Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me.
And those of you who are watching on video maybe are able to discern that uh, something's different today. In fact, the studio audience wondered if uh, R.C. didn't make it today, and they said he sounds like R.C., he walks like R.C., he gestures like R.C., but he certainly doesn't look. And so R.C. asked me to come today and explain something about this to you. The last time I changed my hairdo, I created a small crisis in Christendom and it made me existentially aware of how people respond, not so much to what you say, but how you wear your hair or what tie you have on. So let's get that behind us before we continue. For those of you who are listening on radio and wondering what this is all about, I got my hair cut, changed my hairstyle, and I walked into the studio this morning. I was subjected to derision and mockery from all my friends. And those that are watching it on TV, let me ask you, please, don't write me any letters about this. Just if you want to enjoy it, enjoy it on your own. But let's now turn our attention to more serious matters to the content of Psalm 51 as we've been examining it to the Lord in prayer. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. David is repenting here not only for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, but also for the contrived conspiracy he entered into with his general Joab to place Bathsheba's husband Uriah at the front line of battle to ensure Uriah's death that David may possess Bathsheba for himself. And so he is here uh, expressing his guilt of flipping through the TV channels And there I saw, to my amazement, a rerun of a film that's almost 50 years old, starring Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward, which was called David and Bathsheba. And I only saw a small segment of the film, but the segment focused on David's meeting with Uriah and Uriah's expression of loyalty to David and David's complex machinations to make sure that Uriah was placed at the front and killed. And after having accomplished this, now David says, oh God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud Of your righteousness. Here David promises to use his voice, which is obviously accomplished as he was a musician, to praise the uh, mercy and the love of God and to praise God for being the God of his salvation and the God who would deliver him from his guilt. Then he says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. And in this series, he speaks about his tongue, his lips, and his mouth. And so often we see that point.
point of focus in the biblical concern for sin. As I've already mentioned, when Isaiah beheld the glory of God in the temple, he cried out in his own dismay, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. We look at Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul speaks about the nature of our human corruption. He talks about our lips and our tongue and our mouths and how, how the poison of asps, deadly poison, the poisonous snakes, is under our lips. James devotes almost an entire chapter in his epistle to talk about the power of the tongue to wreak havoc with its uh, destructive capacity by way we use our tongue to violate other people with our lies, with our slanders, with our gossiping, and so on. And so David here is asking that God will cure his mouth so that in his expression and and experience of forgiveness, he will be able to use that organ to sing aloud the joy of his salvation. And he said, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. And he's asking God to open his lips. Give me the possibility to speak, and my speech and my song will be about your greatness. Then he goes on to say, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, will not despise. Now notice that here David makes a direct reference to the provision for guilt and atonement and forgiveness that is established in the Old Covenant ceremonies, where on the Day of Atonement, the animal was slain and placed upon the altar after the sins of the people were transferred to it by imputation. And the whole ritual in the Old Testament was designed to offer a sacrifice to God to satisfy the wrath of God and the justice of God. And this is what every penitent person runs up against, is the justice of God. Remember I said earlier that David's most revealing comment was when he acknowledges that God in his righteousness has every right to judge him. And when we become acutely aware of our sin before God, our problem is his righteousness. And how can the demands of his law, how can the demands of his righteousness, his justice, be satisfied? And we remember that when the church articulates her doctrine of the atonement of Christ, that that doctrine of us is articulated in terms of two critical concepts, substitution and satisfaction. that the justice or the righteousness of God is satisfied by our substitute who offers himself 
as a sacrifice once and for all before God. And on the cross, Christ, our high priest, is lifting himself up. He's offering himself before the Father, just as the priests in the Old Testament offered the animals on the altar of sacrifice that is made by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament is that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. That the blood offerings that were given in the Old Testament on the altar of sacrifice were given to satisfy the demands of God's justice. But they in themselves were completely impotent to do the job. The significance of those animal sacrifices and of that ceremony that was elaborately worked through in the Old Testament was to be a sign or a, a shadow, a type of that which would come in the future when the meritorious, perfect sacrifice would be offered great high priest that didn't have to be repeated year after year after year, but was offered once and for all. And so David already understands that there's no inherent power in those sacrifices in the Old Testament. And he realizes that what God wants from the soul of a person who is humbling themselves before him and who is genuinely repentant is not the blood sacrifice of an animal. And so he says, Thou desirest not sacrifices, or else I would give it. I would offer whatever sacrifice you wanted right now, God. But I understand that 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 can't do it. Any sacrifice that I offer, any animal that I put forth, cannot pay for my crime against you. Now, again, David is not disparaging the significance of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. He's looking beyond it to the full meaning of it that will not come until David's greater son, who actually is the one who makes it possible for David to be forgiven in the first place, his son who is also his Lord. He said, you do not delight in burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. In other words, the only sacrifice that David has to offer to God at this time is his broken spirit, his contrite heart. Now, one of the most important things that we need to learn about repentance is the nature of true repentance as distinguished from false or inauthentic forms of repentance. And the distinction we make in theology is the distinction between attrition and contrition. If we want to look at attrition, we could look at an example found in the Old Testament of Esau, who sold his birthright to his brother Jacob because he was hungry for a bowl of porridge, or a mess of pottage it's called, 
he gives up his entire birthright to his brother. And after he had consumed this food stuff and his belly was satisfied and he realized the severity of the price he had paid to gain this soup, then he was sorry that he had done it. And he, according to the book of Hebrews, repented with many tears. But the repentance of Esau is seen as attrition, not contrition. And here's what attrition is. It is a repentance motivated by either a fear of punishment or a subsequent loss due to the consequences of the action. It's not a genuine remorse because somebody has done something evil or has offended another person or supremely having offended God. But rather, it's a sorrow motivated by some kind of personal loss. Attrition is the kind of repentance that you see in little children when you catch them with their hands in the cookie jar. And they look at you and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't spank me. That their sorrow is not motivated by a stricken conscience, but it is motivated by that fear of punishment. And there are those who would repent to seek a ticket out of hell itself if they could, but again, have no sincerity of heart of having offended God. And the other alternative is the type, as I mentioned, of Esau, who repents because he's lost something that he didn't want to lose. We're sorry if we, if we, uh, because of our actions, we lose our job or we lose possessions or we lose our status in the community, and we're sorry that we were caught. We're sorry that we have to face the consequences of our sin. That is attrition. But contrition comes out of a genuine sorrow for having offended God, for having done what we know is sinful. And that is what David says that he is experiencing. God, my heart is broken. My spirit has been smashed because you have awakened me to the dreadful reality of my sin. We see throughout the scriptures when people are broken by an encounter with God, that there is an experience of humility. Uh, I mentioned that I've been in the process of writing a book on the love of God, and as I've been working through 1 Corinthians 13, for example, I noted that one of the phrases in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul describes what love is and what it isn't, he says that love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. And I immediately thought of the arrogance and the pride of the Pharisees who paraded themselves in their status in front of the people. They loved the front seats in the, in the synagogue, and they displayed the phylacteries of their garments to show their elegance before the people. 
And I thought of the, the expression that we have in English, proud, because we see the peacock with the male peacock with its beautiful tail feathers, spreading out the tail feathers, fanning them out in display, and then beginning to strut around the barnyard so that everybody can see the beauty. I like to go into the woods uh, uh, during uh, the uh, spring turkey season because there are few sights that you will see in nature that can compare to the male turkey during the mating mating season. That the male turkey, when he is trying to lure the hen to himself, he goes into this uh, elaborate ceremony or ritual, a mating ritual, where the first thing he does is spread out, fan out his tail feathers, and then he literally puffs himself up. So his chest gets real big, and then he goes into his dance where he prances. To see that in the woods is unbelievable because it's a rare thing that human beings get to see. But I wonder if that's what Paul has in mind when he speaks of those are vaunted in their pride and are puffed up. It is just the extreme opposite to the experience that people have when they encounter the holiness of God. We see again Job, when God speaks to Job, uh, just as David is saying here, Job says, Behold, I am vile, and I repent in dust and ashes, and I will place my hand upon my mouth and speak no more against thee. Or other saints of the Old Testament will say, I am a worm. And no man. Now that flies in the face of the whole mentality of narcissism that uh, in, that characterizes the culture in which we live, where we believe that self-esteem is one of the most important ingredients that people can have, and God forbid that we should ever make people feel guilty for their wickedness and take from them their vaunted self-esteem. Well, I believe that the dignity of human beings is important and that there is a place that we should be be, be protective of the fragile uh, confidence of human beings and not crush people's spirits. I certainly believe in that, but we can't go so far with this concern for self-esteem that we create people who are hardened to being broken by the spirit of holiness that drives us to our knees, just as David experiences here when he experiences contrition, where he says, Behold, the sacrifices of God are a broken, contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God's face is against the proud, but he hears the cry. Of the humble. God has never despised a person who comes before him in contrition with a broken heart, whose heart is broken because of an awareness of one's sinfulness. When Jesus gives the Beatitudes in the New Testament, he says in one of the Gospels, very first Beatitude, are blessed are the poor in spirit. And then blessed are those who mourn. And the idea that is communicated there that the poor in spirit are those who have been brought low, those who are humble, 
those who approach God in the same spirit that David is speaking about here and who are mourning not simply for the loss of loved ones to death, but they are mourning their sin. Again, it was customary for the people in the Old Testament to wear, to rend their garments and to put on sackcloth and, and ashes. If we saw somebody doing that today, we would send the little guys in the white coats and the paddy wagon to pick them up because we would say that's so extreme. The reaction of the outward reaction to what the inward wrenching of the soul is that these people are experiencing in their encounter with God. And the point that David understands is, God, you will never despise that spirit so that anybody who comes before God in the spirit of penance, in the spirit of contrition, has no fear of being cast away from his presence. And finally, David ends the psalm with these words. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. So now David is saying, don't punish the nation and the holy city because of me. I, you have made me king over Israel. And because of my sin, the whole land mourns. But, oh God, please do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then they shall offer bulls upon your altar. And here the psalm ends. But we have one more session left. And even though we are finishing Psalm 51 today, in our next session we're going to look at Psalm 10's, what I believe is the sequel to this psalm, his expression of the joy of forgiveness. social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
A global flood on Mars? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. The planet Mars is marked with evidence of massive amounts of erosion, so much so that many scientists believe there was a global flood on Mars. Now, our planet is also covered with evidence of a global flood. Rock layers stretching across continents, miles of sediments laid down by water, and so much more. And yet most scientists refuse to consider there was a global flood on Earth. Why do they believe in a global flood on a planet with no liquid water today, but reject one on a planet 70% covered in water? Because ultimately, it's a spiritual issue. You see, they don't want to believe the Bible's history. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can dive into studying that glory at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again and many others at AnswersRadio.com. Great High Priest whose name is love. 
Rewriting evolution again. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. Everyone knows of the beautiful ring surrounding Saturn or Jupiter. But did you know that scientists discovered a new ring system just this year? These rings encircle a dwarf planet named Hua'a. Now, scientists have ideas about how ring systems supposedly evolved. But these newly discovered rings don't follow the rules of evolution. Scientists don't even know how they could have formed. But I know planetary rings didn't form through chance random processes. Planets and their rings were created by God. Evolutionary ideas, they need constant revision and updating because evolutionists have the wrong starting point, man's ideas. There's so much more to learn when you visit our Faith Building website, AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
The dinosaurs wiped out by an asteroid? This is Ken Ham, and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in northern Kentucky. Off the coast of Mexico, deep in the ocean, is a massive crater. It was made by an asteroid seven miles wide. It's this asteroid that's believed to have wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, how should we understand this in biblical history? Well, this massive space rock hit Earth during the global flood. It would have caused devastation we can't even imagine. But remember that God sent the flood to destroy the Earth, except the life that was saved aboard the ark. Yes, Earth was devastated in the past as a judgment on sin. And there's another judgment coming, this time by fire. But God offers salvation from this judgment through his son. Discover the truth about dinosaurs and the Earth's true history when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged in your faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all
fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you Rewriting evolution again. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. Everyone knows of the beautiful ring surrounding Saturn or Jupiter. But did you know that scientists discovered a new ring system just this year? These rings encircle a dwarf planet named Hua'a. Now, scientists have ideas about how ring systems supposedly evolved, but these newly discovered rings don't follow the rules of evolution. Scientists don't even know how they could have formed. But I know, planetary rings didn't form through chance random processes. Planets and their rings were created by God. Evolutionary ideas, they need constant revision and updating because evolutionists have the wrong starting point, man's ideas. There's so much more to learn when you visit our Faith Building website, AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah.
A global flood on Mars? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. The planet Mars is marked with evidence of massive amounts of erosion, so much so that many scientists believe there was a global flood on Mars. Now, our planet is also covered with evidence of a global flood. Rock layers stretching across continents, miles of sediments laid down by water, and so much more. And yet most scientists refuse to consider there was a global flood on Earth. Why do they believe in a global flood on a planet with no liquid water today, but reject one on a planet 70% covered in water? Because ultimately, it's a spiritual issue. You see, they don't want to believe the Bible's history. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can dive into studying that glory at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again and many others at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. 
And now this is a lesson, um, actually a clip from Wretched, also known as Wretched Radio and Wretched TV show. This is from their YouTube channel. This is why the Duggars and millions of other Baptists were deceived by Bill Gothard. But it's like the epitome of evil. I don't think there's anything worse. It's patriarchal. It's authoritarian. Women don't have rights. Children break. The ideal teachings aren't Christianity. There's something entirely different. There's been so many people that have been hurt by this so-called ministry. I just hope and pray that this never happens to anyone else ever again. How in the world did the Bill Gothard phenomenon even happen? How did a fundamentalist Baptist movement filled with some very fine folks let Bill Gothard inflict so much pain on potentially millions of people? If we do not or cannot answer that question, we will not be able to help the people who were scarred and damaged by the legalistic teachings of the next Bill Gothard. And we will not identify the next legalistic abuser who might inflict damage on your family. Let's see if we can find something redemptive from shiny, happy people. While there are no doubt other issues that allowed Bill Gothard to find fertile soil as a fundamentalist related words that will reveal why Gothard's teachings took root and what to be on the lookout for. Number one, a preferred stories over Bible teaching. I said, how long have you resented your height? She said a couple of years. Anecdotes can certainly be helpful, but a preacher who spends more time telling stories than rightly dividing the word is a preacher to be avoided. Number two, hermeneutics. People say, well, how many children do you have? The answer is how many blessings of God? Gothard didn't follow basic rules of biblical interpretation like context is king. That's how he was able to use Psalm 127 to guilt parents into having as many children as possible. Happy is the man that Here's that psalm. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Truth, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Truth, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. In other words, the psalmist is actually talking about boy babies who will grow up to protect and defend not as many kids as you can possibly have, which might gasp include girls. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Yes, it's a blessing, but the context does not infer you need to have as many children as you can possibly give birth to. Repopulate the nation with godly sons and daughters. Now is the time. Another hermeneutical deficiency is Gothard's use of the analogy of Scripture, Scripture interpreting Scripture. 
you can't take a single verse and apply it without considering, you know, what the rest of the Bible has to say, particularly about your subject. And you see that regularly with Gothard. He takes a fairly obvious truth and applies it without any limits. We're all proud of these mothers, fathers who obeyed the Lord in bringing more sons and daughters into the world. Number three, application. Because Bill Gothard didn't let Scripture interpret Scripture, he would take a biblical truth, not have any breaks put on it, and let other Scriptures define and limit that biblical truth. Let me show you some examples. Back to Psalm 127, it says kids are a blessing, but it doesn't state we should strive to create as many blessings as possible. Bill Gothard was performing eisegesis. He would take a truth and extend it beyond its intention, import his meaning into the verse. For instance, money is a blessing, but what Christian would say we should try to create as much wealth as possible or more ridiculously We'd all agree water is good, it's needed for life, but it would be foolish to then conclude you must drink as much water as a human can possibly consume every second of every day without fail. Ridiculous indeed. Second example of poor biblical application due to lack of hermeneutics, the analogy of scripture, it's Gothard's overextending of the biblical necessity of authority. This matter of Authority, so important. He was big into authority, and authority is good. Blessings do tend to follow those who submit, but Gothard didn't allow any other verse to color that truth. So according to Gothard, women should totally, completely, demurely submit to their husbands, stay at home, create a full quiver, be thankful for whatever they have. And while that is a toxic recipe for patriarchy of the worst sort, one major area in which God began to really work in my heart was in the air of submission. My husband had asked me not to wear pants, and I was out from under his authority again. Not to mention abuse. The rod of reproof. Punish him with the rod severely. He screams too hard for the first time, gets hysterical, wait. You know, a little psychological terror sometimes more effective than pain. God's hand was on your leg, son. A shorter the skirt the more vicious the trap. Techniques for training an animal and a human are the same. This emphasis, this singular focus on authority only makes sense when neglecting the other equally important truths like men and women are, you know, equal in value. A husband is to cherish his wife, nourish his wife, tend to his wife, and even submit appropriately to his wife. Number four, legalism. Oof. The biggest problem with Gothard's teachings is that they lacked the gospel. Yeah, he spoke about the gospel, but his teachings were anything but grace-centered. They were legalistic life hacks that didn't produce genuinely joy-filled people. Here are just a few examples of Gothard's legalism. First, Gothard, there is an umbrella of safety. Every one of us has umbrellas of protection. If we get out from under that umbrella, we expose ourselves to the realm and the power of Satan's control. If you do everything you are told to do by those in authority over you, then you will be safe. If you don't look out, 
you're going to end up dead in a gutter with a dirty needle dangling from between your toes. As long as we're under these umbrellas of protection, Satan cannot get through with destructive temptations. Is it true that life goes well when you follow God's precepts? Of course, Proverbs makes that general promise. Even pagans benefit from godly practices without believing in God. And that is why Gothard could boast of the success of these principles, because while they they will work to a degree, Gothard's umbrella of protection, it's a work-based system that depends on your obedience. You must do in order to be safe. That is law, not gospel. That is legalism, not liberty. Furthermore, obedience is not your protector. God is just one of many psalms that describe God as our protector. Psalm 91, whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection, there's our word of the Almighty, can say to him, you are my defender. You are my protector. You are my God. In you I trust. He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. God is our protector, not an umbrella of authority that you work to create and sustain. Second example of legalism, if you visit the Gothard website, entire tabs dedicated to rule-keeping, obedience-like, Learn and live out Jesus' teachings in your heart and life. In other words, keep the laws. And, of course, we should keep the laws. Those laws, though, have no authority over the believer. They don't get you saved. They don't keep you saved. You'll hardly find the gospel or the correct motivation for obedience. We should strive to keep his laws, but the motivation for obedience must be propelled by our response to the amazing obedience of Jesus, which he imputes to us. Gothard emphasized obedience without providing the correct motivation. God's love in Christ. The Gothard website, it is do, 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 but done, done, done by Jesus, hardly found. And that's why the Netflix documentary was rightly titled Shiny Happy People. The Gothard system is a system of onerous works, degrading rules, a lack of Christian liberty, and scant focus on the goodness of God. To be a Christian, one must pretend to be a shiny, happy Christian. The problem is legalism never produces joy, only despair when one fails to fulfill the laws, or pride when you think that you've kept the laws perfectly. In IBLP, you're at high alert all the time, digging into everything, making sure you're not doing or thinking or feeling anything that's going to get you sent to hell, and hell was very vivid for us. It was not an abstract concept. If you've been influenced by the teachings of Bill Gothard, I am pleased to tell you that if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. In Christ, God is fully pleased in you because he's fully pleased with his son, and in him, through faith alone, he is equally pleased with you. So if you've never surrendered your works and trusted in the works of Jesus, exclusively. Today's the day of salvation. Repent and trust in Christ. Now be forgiven, adopted, set free, then live your life in joyful response to the knowledge that the Son sets you free and you are loved as much as the Father loves the Son. If you need help digesting that awesome truth, we would like to send you a gift. 
We want to send this to you courtesy of our gospel partners who love you too. Please note, this book is not a mass giveaway. We want to send you this book only if you've been in the Gothard movement or you've been affected by the Gothard movement and you struggle to comprehend the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to ask you to pay for shipping, but the $15 book by Dr. Heath Lambert, absolutely free. We want it to be a blessing to you. Uh, visit wretched.org slash love, wretched.org slash love. And let today be the day that the sun sets you free to know that you are secure and safe in him and loved by the Father. Olivia found herself afraid and confused with an unexpected pregnancy until she visited preborn network clinics. She saw her baby in the womb. She learned she was carrying a life, and she decided to choose life. Would you please consider supporting Preborn Network of Clinics at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. You're going to heaven when you die? This, inshallah, means God willing. That is our goal. You don't know? It's all about what you've done in good and what you've done bad in life. We can never determine whether or not it's a yes or it's a no. So it's a matter of your good outweighs your bad? Absolutely. And I think that's just not just um, um, just Islamical, but I think that's universal in all. So do you believe in hell? I do believe in hell, yes. So who's going to hell? Is it those who don't do enough good to outweigh their bad? Allah's the one. I can only tell you. Allah's the person who will judge this. So here's a question for you. If I'm in a court of law and I'm found guilty of a serious crime, and I say to the judge, judge, I know I'm guilty, but here's my defense. I've done a lot of good things, and I'm hoping my good things will outweigh the bad. The judge is going to say to you, this is a court of law. I'm not going to judge you on the good things you've done. I'm here to judge you on your crimes. So when it comes to man's courts, good works are irrelevant. A judge will only judge you on your crimes. And it's exactly the same with God. We're judged for our sins and not the good things we do. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think you're a good person, morally? I like to think what I've what I can bring, I'm doing good. Let's go through the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, and see how you're going to do on Judgment Day. How many lies have you told in your life? I would say I do my best to try to say, to always be honest. But you've told a few lies. I've been honest as much as I can, but yes, here and there, you know, we've said, what did, did you eat for lunch? No, when I really have. So, little white lies. Little white lies. So, what do you call someone who tells lies? They say that you are, you're, you're not somebody who told the truth. A liar. <laughs> Somebody who does not tell the truth. Yeah, that's true. She refused to call herself a liar. So I knew I was going to have a tough time, and you'll see I did. So what do you do in such a case? Well, I resorted to giving my own testimony, which can be very powerful to illustrate the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Someone once said, the man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. Now, have you ever stolen something in your whole life, irrespective of its value, in your whole life? If classifying me taking my cousin's shirt so I can wear it for tomorrow's um, outing, then yeah. Stole your cousin's shirt? Yeah, but after I told her about it. <laughs> so you stole and then told her? Yeah. Have you ever used God's name in vain in your whole life? I do my best not to. Jesus said if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever looked with lust? 
you know, we have an Islamic perspective. You know, there is a, a thing, especially for men and both equal with women, you know, there's one glance you're allowed, which is why um, Muslim men, you know, um, a lot of, I don't want to say Muslim men, I don't want to put that as a, you know, as a collection, but, you know, men are told as equally as women, when you see the opposite gender, try to lower your gaze to avoid such thoughts. But even though God also says you will not be accounted for such thoughts, the only thing you'll be accounted for is if you take action with these thoughts. Well, Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. And Islam says Jesus is a prophet, and a prophet cannot lie. When I realized I'd broken those commandments, I'd lied, I'd stolen, I'd looked with lust a lot, as most of us have. I realized on Judgment Day I'd be guilty, and the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer, no fornicator will inherit God's kingdom. So I realized I was in big trouble, and I found out something incredible. This was nearly 50 years ago, that the Creator God provided a Savior. When Jesus suffered on the cross, just before he died, he cried out, it is finished. He was saying, paid in full. We broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. The Bible says death is actually wages. It says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sin. Like a judge looks at a heinous criminal that's murdered multiple people and says to him, you have earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. This is what we're paying you. And sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given us the death sentence. You're on capital punishment. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. And yet the Bible says he's the lover of your soul, provided a Savior who took the punishment. We broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone else pays them. He'll say, you're guilty, but someone's paid your fine. You're out of here. Well, God can take the death sentence off you all because of what Jesus did on the cross. He rose from the dead after he suffered for the sin of the world. And now if you'll simply repent of your sins and trust in him, not your goodness, but trust in him, God promises he'll grant you everlasting life as a free gift, not because you're good, but because he's good and kind and rich in mercy. Are you basing this off the Old or the now modernized um, Testament? God's promise in the Old Testament was to destroy death, and the New Testament tells us how he did it. And when you say modernized, I've got access to the original Greek language, so I see that it hasn't changed. So... Yeah, the Old Testament, God says, I'll destroy death for humanity. New Testament tells us how he did it. The Creator didn't leave us in darkness. Because the scriptures say he'll not be bribed on judgment day by our good works. It says that not by works of righteousness that he saves us, but according to his mercy. And the only way a judge can show mercy is if someone pays a fine and satisfies justice. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, paid in full. That means you don't have to work to try and earn eternal life because it can't be earned. It's a free gift of God. So do you believe that Jesus is God, or do you believe that he's a prophet? Or do you believe there's a higher um, power that Jesus reports to? I believe the Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. He created himself a body and filled the body of the hand, filled the glove, specifically to take the punishment for our sins. It took a perfect human being to be a lamb of God, to be sacrificed for our sins. It could not be a sinner. But I could never convince you that Jesus is God in human form. Only God does that. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said to Peter, he said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed to you who I am, but my Father who is in heaven. So if you seek after God and say, God, you're the creator. If you have provided a savior to take the punishment for my sins and that eternal life is a free gift, please tell me, please show me. And the Bible says, if we seek him with all our heart, we'll surely find him. And Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Do you believe in the devil? I do believe in the devil. 
Bible says Satan will try and blind your mind to the good news that God has provided everlasting life as a free gift. And I hope today that you'll think about this with a deep sense of sobriety because you don't know when you're going to die. And I don't want you to be trusting in your own goodness to save you, but in God's kindness in providing a Savior. You've been very gracious to listen to me today. May I give you a book that I've written? Yes, absolutely. It's called Scientific Facts in the Bible. And I think this is very beautiful. And I, um, how do I say this? That's good. You're very passionate about what you do, and you put it in a book, and I admire that. I'm so pleased. Do you think you'll read it? Um, I absolutely think I will read it. I would love to see the perspective of what you have to say and what's the truth about the matter of it. I would love to see where you get your ideas from and where you get your thoughts and your beliefs from. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more, the Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. If you've never seen Crazy Bible, you've got to see it. It's one of my favorites. You can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. That was Red Comfort with the teachings called Wait Till You as a clip played to you here her take on lust for movement. And you can find that on the the YouTube channel Ray Comfort Just Witnessing. And thanks for assuming Liz Cantrilla. All I got for you next is called What? It's when you when we understand the text. Uh it's from our other channel is WWT text and this one is said about divorce and remarriage here on Trippy Covery. Marriage can be a messy thing because it's uh, made up of two sinful people. (laughs) But marriage can also be a wonderful thing that honors the Lord. And God has given us instructions in his word when we understand the text. Bible stories and verses we think we know, we don't. When we understand the text, it's committed to teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. Visit our website at www.utc.com. Here once again is Pastor Gabe. Thank you, Becky. We're back to our study in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to pick up reading here in verse 31 and go through verse 32. (laughs) This is the next portion of Jesus' sermon which I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Today we are going to consider what Jesus taught about marriage divorce and remarriage now this particular episode like most is just 20 minutes long so this isn't going to be terribly exhaustive but i think we'll give a good understanding of what jesus teaches here and then later on in matthew 19 as well first let's get very basic what is marriage 
Marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. That's how God created it. That's what he intended from the very beginning. As Jesus also says in Matthew 19, it's there in response to the Pharisees concerning a question they had about divorce that Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees go on to say, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Similar sort of a statement that Jesus makes here in the Sermon on the Mount. So we understand the definition of marriage, a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. What is divorce? Well, in its simplest terms, divorce is the end of a marriage. Now, the dictionary defines divorce as judicial declaration dissolving a marriage in whole or in part, especially one that releases the marriage partners from all matrimonial obligations. We as Christians hold to a biblical definition of marriage, also the true definition of marriage as God has created it. A marriage is the covenant union of one man and one woman for life. Therefore, we must also have a biblical definition of divorce, which is to break that covenant between a husband and a wife. There are some 30 passages in the Bible addressing divorce, and none of them, not one, speaks of divorce as a good thing. It is regarded as grievous as death, because that's what a divorce is. Divorce is the death of a marriage. Whenever I have counseled couples that are in trouble, marriages that are on the rocks, and one of them brings up something about divorce, or I have to address the fact that they've talked about divorce between them. I am sure to inform them that God hates it. God hates divorce, as it says in Malachi 2.16, and divorce is the death of a marriage. But we believe in a God who raises the dead, amen? And he can also revive a dead marriage. And if you live in a bad marriage, trust in the God who saves. Maybe your spouse has already abandoned you, or maybe your spouse hasn't physically left you, but they've divorced from you emotionally. They're more dedicated to their friends or to video games or looking at things on the computer that they shouldn't be looking at. Maybe you have a spouse that's more dedicated to a career or uh, it just has no emotional desire to be with you at all. Maybe your spouse has been unfaithful. Maybe your parents got divorced. And the effects of that, you feel like you've never actually recovered from that. I tell you to trust in the God who is always faithful, who will never leave you and never forsake you. Maybe you have been through a divorce. And I hope that you humble yourself before the Lord. Jesus died on the cross even for the sin of divorce. Turn to him for repentance, and he will forgive you. 
desire to walk in the way of Christ, on the path of righteousness and holiness. But never think of the grace of God as permission for you to get a divorce. Now, here in these two verses, Jesus gives an exception clause. Verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality, and we'll come to understand that further here as we go. Whenever we start talking about the subject of divorce, in our American context especially, you almost always hear this statistic. 50% of all marriages in America end in divorce, right? You've heard that stat before? Well, that statistic is not true. It's based on an inflated number that came out in the 80s when the divorce rate peaked. And boomers, I hate to break it to you, but that was y'all. The, the worst divorce rate in America was in the 80s, and it was the baby boomer splits. And by the way, the first president to endorse no-fault divorce was a conservative, or a quote-unquote conservative. It was Ronald Reagan. When he was governor of California, he passed the no-fault divorce law. And then that, of course, it was just a matter of time before it infected all of America. Divorce is rampant in this country. I don't, I don't say the 50% statistic is false to make you think, see, divorce really isn't all that bad. No, it's so bad, it's its own cottage industry. It's a $50 billion a year industry in America. Of course, you've got lawyers that make a lucrative living out of divorce litigation, but you've also got uh, divorce party favors that you can buy. If you go on Amazon.com, you can find decorations for your divorce party. And this is not in some in-the-dark corner of the culture. It's right there in the middle of pop culture. Tabloid newspapers wouldn't exist if it wasn't for superstar divorces and high-profile marriages that get dissolved and things like that. But for all the culture's attempts to, address, to dress this up or celebrate it or even make divorce into something fun, no one truly thinks this is fun. Does anybody ever get married thinking, meh, I can always get a divorce later? No. People get married thinking their love is the greatest love that's ever been loved, and no one's ever loved anybody as much as I've loved you. No one gets married wanting to get a divorce. There was a song that came out years ago. This came out when I was in college. It was by the artist John Mayer. He had a song called Home Life in which he sang, I can tell you this much, I will marry just once. And if it doesn't work out, give her half of my stuff. It's fine with me. We said eternity. Now, excusing the nonchalant line, it's fine with me. I believe Mayer recognizes that marriage is supposed to be a lifelong covenant an oath-bound relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And that is why marriage ceremonies almost universally include the giving of an oath or the exchange of vows. Now, there are some that write their own vows, but the traditional vows, and I would encourage you to stick with the traditional vows, the traditional vows declare this, you and no other, to have and to hold. From this day forward, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. That is God's intention for marriage. And dare I say, it's even bound up in human nature. He made us to understand this concept. 
There are people who are unbelievers who don't believe the Bible that understand the concept of till death do us part. We should be able to understand through general revelation the lifelong commitment that marriage is supposed to be. We were, we were not meant for serial relationships, jumping in and out of, of, of a relationship with this person and then with that person and then jumping into this bed and into that bed. That is nothing but selfish. It is nothing but hedonism, feeding the appetites of the flesh. Humanity cannot survive that kind of carelessness, and we're seeing how it's tearing apart our culture, tears apart families, ruins people's lives. Marriage is the solid foundation of a solid family, and you know you know that without me having to tell you. Families are families for better or for worse. Without families, we don't have community. Without community, we don't have society. The family is still the basic building block of a civilization. We get this. We just don't want to. When I say we, I'm talking collectively as a culture. We should understand how this is supposed to work. We just don't want to make it work. So then it's through special revelation when we come to God's word that we are cut to the heart when we read about God's intention for marriage and we realize that we have not held to that standard. In Genesis 1:27, God creates man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2:18, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused him to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, those are words that Jesus doesn't repeat here in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, but he does repeat them later on in Matthew 19. We're going to come at this subject again as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we will eventually get to Matthew 19, and, and this will come up again. So we'll have another opportunity to go into this in a little bit more depth than just the, the couple of verses that we're looking at today. And by the way, this subject affects everybody. Lest you saw the title or heard me read the opening passage in this devotional and you thought, well, well this doesn't pertain to me today. I'm not even married yet. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, yes, this concerns you too. You, as a brother or sister in the Lord, have an obligation to see to it that your brothers and sisters in the Lord remain true to their vows. And where you see a marriage, you better not do anything to infringe upon that marriage to try to break it up or, or do anything that would come between those vows and that covenant. For the Lord will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You need to understand that. And you need to recognize that sex is made for marriage. We are not made to jump in and out of each other's beds. And you also need to consider, because of what Jesus says here, if you're going to get married someday, you need to think about who it is you're going to marry. For once again, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you need to think about that before you get married. 
In verse 31, Jesus mentions here a certificate of divorce, and we read about that in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this is the only Old Testament law about divorce. And it in no way condones, suggests, or encourages divorce. But that's exactly the way that the Pharisees were using it. They were twisting that instruction in Deuteronomy 24 to give permission for divorce, to let men divorce their wives who didn't really like their wives very much. So Jesus quotes the law exactly, and he explains it. He was explaining Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which the Jews were using as an excuse to divorce for any reason as long as they gave a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, no, you've missed the point of the law. Divorce is unloving. It is destructive, and it makes adulterers out of one another. You have caused your wife to commit adultery, and you have caused the man she married to commit adultery. Just as the law said, you have brought sin upon the land God gave you as an inheritance. I mean, in just these, these two verses, in just verse 32 here, Jesus demonstrates how divorce tears people up. And it's not just the person that goes through a divorce. It's other people down the line. It's kids. It's families. It's communities. It's societies. It's entire cultures can come crumbling down because of unfaithful marriages. You want to destroy a society? Destroy marriage. It brings sin upon the land. Now, with regards to verse 32 here, where Jesus gives an exception clause, we have to be very careful lest we commit the same error that the Pharisees made. You might be tempted to throw anything under the label of sexual immorality and justify divorce for any reason. Well, I caught my husband looking at porn, and so I can divorce him now because that's sexual immorality. Is that how we're supposed to understand this? You could say something as foolish as, well, because a husband and a wife are sexual partners, then any kind of sin he commits against her would be sexual immorality, and she is justified in divorcing him. Sexual immorality in this case is adultery. If a man has sex with another woman outside of marriage, he's committed adultery, and she is justified in divorcing him. Or if the shoe is on the other foot, he is justified in divorcing her if she has committed if she's the one who has committed adultery. There's no wrongdoing on the part of the person who did not commit this sin. Remember that marriage is a covenant between two people. The adulterer has broken the covenant, and this sin, the sin of adultery, is so great. It is as if the adulterer has died, bringing to an end the covenant. 
Because what would have happened to that adulterer in Israel if the law had been carried out? He would have been put to death. Consider these words from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 24, of Marriage and Divorce, Paragraph 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage. So in other words, it would be adultery that would happen during an engagement. Giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the cause of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. And I agree with that. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is exactly right on that. Before I met Becky, I had been engaged to another woman, and that woman was unfaithful to me. Adultery was committed after a contract being detected before marriage, and the engagement was dissolved. Before Becky and me, she was married to another man, and he committed adultery after marriage. Becky sued out a divorce, and after the divorce, she was free to marry another as if the offending party were dead. We've both been through exactly this. Becky and I investigated this thoroughly before we got married. We went through marriage counseling. We received counsel from four different pastors from two different denominations. All four pastors were in unwavering agreement. We had just reasons for our separations, and our marriage was pleasing in the sight of God. When Becky walked down the aisle to me on the day of our wedding, dressed in white, she was a pure bride with nothing against her, and she brought nothing against me. Our efforts were not an attempt to find someone who would tell us what we wanted to hear. We wanted to do what honored one another and what honored God. But there were people that didn't agree with our wedding. I had uh, some very fundamentalist family members <laughs> who emailed me and tried to oppose the marriage. One of such persons I managed to convince that everything that we were doing was pleasing in the sight of God, and he ended up coming to the wedding, and I was very thankful for that. Becky and I have been a picture of how the grace of God covers over our sin and brings something beautiful out of it. We were both in terrible relationships before we met each other. We have a great marriage, but that is against our natures. <laughs> it's not like we're just naturally kind, happy people, and so therefore we have a great marriage. No, we can show you from our previous relationships exactly what kind of people we are. Even in those failed relationships, we can't say that, that we did everything right. Yet God had mercy on us. He showed us his grace, and we exercised that grace between one another so that we have the kind of marriage that we have today. And we become a testament to say that if God can bring us up out of the ashes, if he can turn us into the beautiful family that we are now, he can redeem you as well. And even if a happy marriage is not in your future, that breaks my heart. But even if that's not what's going to happen for you on this side of heaven, you can still know with confidence that you are forgiven your sins, you are a bride of Christ, and will be united together with him forever in glory, that's the eternal marriage we should be looking forward to. See, marriage on this side of heaven is a picture of that marriage, when the church is with Christ forever in glory. God will be faithful to his promises, even though people are not. 
you must confess your sins to God, be cleansed of all unrighteousness, walk in holiness before him. If you are in a marriage that's in a bad place, do what you need to do to make it right with your spouse. Ask that God would forgive you, forgive you both, and make your marriage into something that honors him. It's not going to be easy, and it doesn't happen overnight. But if you believe in a God who raises the dead, he will also raise your dead marriage to life. In all things that we do, friends, let us honor Christ with our whole lives, knowing that he forgives us, he makes us new, knowing that he is promising us an eternal kingdom for those who endure to the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of marriage that has been given to us to be a picture of the, of the relationship that Christ has with his church. But, of course, marriages are made up of two sinful people, and we don't always get it right. So have mercy on us and teach us to have mercy on each other, to be selfless in our marriages, for Christ was selfless toward us, giving his own self dying on the cross for our sins, rising again from the grave so that whoever believes in him, our sins can be forgiven and we have eternal life. That same grace that he shows to us, teach us to show it to one another and help us to live lives of holiness that honor each other and honor the Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to When We Understand the Text with Pastor Gabe Hughes. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit our website, www.utt.com, and click on the Give tab in the top right corner of the page. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our Bible study, When We Understand the Text. That's all I got for Tributoria, that's when we understand the text. And on YouTube, check it out. And at www.tt.com. And thanks for listening. And let's go out with Yancy and friends and the VRBLE. So, bye for now. Be